Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA. We appreciate being a part of your day, and there is certainly a lot of issues under discussion on today's show. We're going to start here in just a few minutes with Dave Green, the Executive Director of the Wheat Quality Council, taking a look at how this wheat crop looks from a quality perspective here across the country now that harvest is pretty well wrapped up. In segment two, we're going to check in with Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities there in Champaign, Illinois. We're going to look at the markets and how they've reacted to some of this outside news here over the past few days. And we'll talk on the retail sales numbers that were released earlier today. We're going to talk with Ken Zuckerberg in segment three, recently published a report looking at the potential for biofuels going forward. And no surprise to longtime listeners of this show, the future looks bright. And Ken's going to detail why he's optimistic about this sector looking to the future. And we're going to close today with our friend Aaron Bohr of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Pork exports rebounded in August, and they've been a slow spot for the past year. We're going to get Aaron's thoughts on where those pork exports are going and whether or not they'll continue here throughout the winter. But before we get to all of that, let's take a look at this year's wheat crop. Dave Green, Executive Director, Wheat Quality Council, joins us today. And Dave, we certainly appreciate you making the time for us. It's my pleasure. Let's talk first about the Wheat Quality Council. A lot of our listeners might not be in the wheat industry. They might be unfamiliar with the work that you do, Dave. What is it that uh, the yeah. Wheat Quality Council does? So let me start a little bit, again, to try to put this in perspective. We, you know, when most people think of quality, particularly of grain quality, you're thinking of, you know, the condition of the seed. You know, is the, is the seed sound? Does it have good test weight? Is it cracked? Uh, you know, have there been diseases? And, and that works for feed grains because the, the products you end up making, whether it's soybean oil or, or high fructose corn syrup, are pretty much commoditized. They're, 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 they come out the same even though your, your production might be a little different. It may be, take you a little more corn to make the, the same amount of sugar. But, but basically, the, 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 they're, they're very true commodities. Wheat tends to be a little more complicated in that what we're after is, is the starch and the protein inside and particularly how it bakes. So when we talk about wheat quality, we're talking about fitness for use. Does it work for the, for the, for the end user to make the product that he's intended? Whether it's a Twinkie, whether it's a loaf of bread, whether it's a bagel, all of those things are, are the kind of terms that we talk about in wheat quality. So the wheat quality that certainly council makes was sense. formed. And the Wheat Quality Council was formed in the 19, late 1940s, around 1950, after the end of the war. And if you remember what was going on during World War II, all of the, all of the U.S. flour mills were running exclusively to try to feed the world. I mean, our flour was going everywhere. Uh, we couldn't make enough flour. People that worked in flour mills were exempt from military service, for example. It was that important. But eventually... You can rebuild flour mills and grain elevators in Europe and in Germany and these other places. <clears throat> so it didn't take too long before they were growing crops again, wanted to mill their own flour. And so all of a sudden the demand for wheat, U.S. wheat flour plummeted in the, in the 1950s, and the bakers finally got in a position of, of demanding that wheat quality improve, that it gets a little better. So our group formed then, made up of plant breeders, millers, uh, bakers, and allied people, allied to industry groups and, and producer groups, with the idea that let's grow some varieties side by side, let's mill them, let's evaluate them under, under you know, uh, anonymous conditions, and then report back to the plant breeders as to whether these, these wheat varieties are meeting their needs. This is the council's been going on since then, you know, whatever that is, 80 years. So it's been a very, it's been a very good thing for the industry to make sure that the wheat that we sell and that we use here is fit for use. 
Absolutely. That is crucial, particularly when you're dealing with a product that faces the consumer front and center in so many different products. All that being the case, Dave, this is a year we're seeing elevated food prices. No doubt those end users are being picky in the, the quality of wheat they source. How does U.S. wheat compare this year? What have you seen in the different classes? Well, you know, we, we and again, every year we talk about, you know, pockets of, of good or bad production and, and good or bad quality. This year we're very fortunate in that uh, uh, the quality, the end-use quality of all of our classes of wheat, which I think there's seven of them, you know, whether it's Durham or soft wheats or white wheats or hard red winters or springs, all of them tend to be very good quality this year, which is very unusual, I think, for our country. That's really interesting. We saw some delays in planting, particularly for those northern growers, the spring and the Dur Durham wheat, but it held up. Honestly, after testing, it looks like a good crop. Uh, yes, it, it does. And, and uh, you know, they tend to fertilize, you know, they get paid for protein up there. That's a class that's kind of the, the Cadillac wheat around the world that, uh, that people, other countries buy to supplement their local wheat stocks that are not uh, as good a quality. So, Spring wheat tends to be the one that's in kind of high protein and uh, and very the the users are very picky about what they get. But we were very concerned. You know, late planted crops usually struggle or have a lot more reasons to struggle. So, uh, but this year they seem to get through the heat okay, and uh, the weather stayed nice enough for them to finish up what what amounted to a very late harvest. It was indeed very late, but yeah, I've heard some some good reports from producers up in that part of the world. Dave, the other concern, we've seen a lot of global attention on the SRW wheat crop and that focus on the Chicago market. How did it turn out here this year? Well, again, we, you know, we have years where, you know, let's say it's, there's not enough of it or there's, a, there's vomitoxin associated with it or, you know, some other disease that, that, that limits its use. We didn't have a lot of that this year. It, it tended to be a nice, uh, a nice, you know, quality crop that seems to be, you know, well, you know, I, I guess the thing I could tell you that makes me feel better is the U.S. industry likes what they've seen this year. I mean, they like the hard red winter crop. We like the soft red um, quality. Nobody's had to do anything unusual or, 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 you know, different than what they would normally want to do, which is use the class the way it was intended. Well, that is good news. It's nice to have a little stability there, both for producers and for end users. Dave, looking around the world, U.S. wheat in exceptional shape for this growing season. How does that compare to some of our global uh, competitors? Well, people, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to not talk about the war. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of wheat that's struggling to move, struggling to get planted. Uh, that that uh, you know we have the world hasn't run out of wheat yet, and the U.S. has still got plenty of supplies if if it does need to be shipped. But uh, to your point, it is higher priced this year, um, as 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 is a lot of things. And uh, but but you know, and as as you say, the the world is struggling to find wheat to move. You know, the the Ukraine and Russian wheat is still cheaper than uh, U.S. origin wheat. But uh, who knows how long that's going to be able to be shipped. That is a great question. There's a lot of concerns ahead for the global wheat market. Dave Green from the Wheat Quality Council, thank you so much for joining us today for this update on the U.S. crop. My pleasure. And folks, stick around. When we return, we're going to talk with Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities, hear about the market moves this past week and how the outside markets might be weighing on them. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Um, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot on a chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging. Pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins, and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay 
more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, the markets have had a lot of news this past week. We saw the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates released on Wednesday, followed that up very quickly with the broader economy update on core inflation data. And today we got some retail sales numbers out on the big, broad economy side of things. All of these factors are mixing together. And to help us make sense of them, Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities in Champaign, Illinois, joins us today. And Clayton, how's harvest looking there across uh, parts of Illinois? Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, it's coming along really well. The weather, uh, you know, is just extremely dry for so long. We did have a pretty good shot of rain the last uh, two, three days, but uh, people are getting right back out there now, and things are progressing real fast. All right, making some progress there in the fields. That's always good news. Clayton, I want to turn our focus back a few days to Wednesday's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, the WASD from USDA. We saw a big drop in expected soybean yield. They dropped at seven-tenths of a bushel. Caught me a little bit by surprise. Clayton, did that jump out at you? I have to agree with you. It caught us by surprise, too. Um, it, the customers we deal with, and we have customers throughout the country, but the ones in the core of the Midwest, you know, the I states, for the most part, have been pleasantly surprised. I mean, people all along here, the narrative has been that you know, beans are looking great and corn maybe uh, not so much. And, and it seems like the harvest results so far have, have confirmed that the bean numbers are really good for the most part. A number of our customers have got absolute all-time record bean yields. Uh, and then the other surprising thing, I think, was an awful lot of the corn came in a lot better than people expected, too. So um, we were definitely surprised to see that big of a cut. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, other areas outside of, you know, the core of the Midwest certainly did get dinged pretty good. You know, a lot of the southern states and far western states uh, certainly took a hit. And and that, that uh, accounted for a lower average more than they would have thought, you know, a bigger cut than we would have thought for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, and I heard that kind of uh, that approach from a lot of different analysts. This was a big drop. And yet, Clayton, when I watched the market's reaction, we saw the bullish move on Wednesday, but it seems like Thursday, all the wind just went out of the sales there in the commodity markets as a whole. What happened? Well, it really did, Mike. It's a strange thing. You know, we keep getting these financial markets, the outside markets are just so hypersensitive to you know the latest inflation reading and all. And, uh, you know, initially the stock market really got nailed yesterday on the CPI report, even though it was only very tiny increase in inflation uh, above expectations, but they hammered. Of course, later on, it turned around dramatically. But the funny thing is that, you know, everybody seems like we're so plagued with inflation, but in reality, we're seeing in the commodity world, uh, I think it's a couple of steps ahead of the, the main street media in that we're not seeing inflation at all. We're seeing a deflation. Every single rally, many of these markets just get hammered. It's like a whack-a-mole game. As soon as any commodity sticks its head above water, uh, some invisible hand comes in there and smashes it down. And I'm not talking just about grains. I mean, if you look at uh, crude oil, I mean, the, the supply-demand statistics for crude is extremely tight. Uh, I'm not talking about, you know, untapped reserves underground and that kind of thing, but, you know, the, the available supplies of crude oil, uh, you would think crude oil would be, you know, well over $100 a barrel, and it just can't get anywhere. It's down hard again today, over $3. Um, cotton market, I mean, there's a market with extremely bullish fundamentals. It's uh, stock to usage ratio is the tightest in years, in decades. And yet, cotton just can't find a friend out there. So uh, it's, it's rubbing off on the corn and beans and wheat as well. And um, it's just kind of ironic that when the whole world seems to be on a red alert over, you know, flashing inflation problems, uh, the opposite very definitely is happening in the commodity world. It is. It's fascinating to see. And it. it's interesting you mentioned that deflationary pressure. You're right, Clayton. Crude poked its head above $90 and that quickly was beaten right back down. You mentioned the cotton market, and that's not one we've discussed a whole lot on the program. But this past summer has been a roller coaster. You mentioned supplies are still tight. Clayton, do you think this price is going to continue to erode lower as we get here through the summer or through the winter? Well, I'm afraid as far as cotton goes, it's, uh, the, the supply story, which is no question bullish, uh, is old news, and that's just not going to inspire any more buying. So right now the market's really focusing on demand, and that's what hammered it again yesterday. I think the uh, uh, or two days ago, the supply-demand numbers globally, they really cut consumption again, and uh, it's probably because of you know, a recession is no doubt taking place in a lot of the world, whether it's been defined here as taking place yet or not is debatable, I guess, although it's getting harder and harder to deny that we're in a recession right now. So I think, you know, it's kind of focusing on that. So in the short term, uh, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, it's hard to imagine a big rebound coming in old crop cotton, but new crop, holy cow, I mean, we're well below the cost of production, uh, it's going to be an interesting acreage battle come next spring. And, and that kind of turns us to the corn and bean situation as far as uh, new crop acreage implications go, too. I mean, if you look at those USDA numbers, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts looking ahead to this next year. Well, I mean, the, the stock to usage ratio for beans um, in the 22-23 numbers, you know, just came out as 4.5%. Uh, for corn, it's 8.3%. Uh, so, I mean, you've got a, a, a stock situation, beans almost twice as tight as corn, and neither one of those are, are, are bearish numbers at all, and yet they're being plagued by these pressures we just talked about a minute ago. But um, and then you add to this the fact that I think bean exports, they're kind of getting, uh, oh, uh, how would I say, uh, really criticized a little unfairly, I think. The bean exports aren't really all that bad. I mean, so far to date, uh, with those revised numbers of the export target, we're, we've sold 45% of the uh, projected total for the whole year. That's exactly where we were a year ago at this point. Corn is the one that's really hurting. So when I look at the stocks and future ratio and I look at the, the, the uh, demand patterns here, I really think beans are underpriced compared to corn, or conversely, corn is overpriced compared to beans. So I think as we go forward, both in the old crop and new crop months, uh, I think you're going to see... Uh, that ratio is starting to kind of work more towards a two-and-a-half-to-one normal relationship. So, in other words, I think beans in the longer term here are going to be buying some acres, and I would sure think cotton would too. So it would be interesting to see that unfold. 
it will be interesting to see that unfold. And we've got a lot of time here until we get some new crops out of South America before we see what is potentially going to come out of Eastern Europe. And I'm wondering, Clayton, you mentioned the tight stocks to use scenario, the bullish factors on the grounds. When does the investor class start to get long commodities again based on those strengths? Boy, that is the million-dollar question, and it's just kind of amazing. When you look at the decline that the equities have been through, um, they don't have the percentages right offhand, but we all know that you know Wall Street has really gotten hammered in the last several months. Uh, I just recently saw a chart of uh, equities uh, divided by commodities, and, and it's uh, or, or either way, I mean, commodities are still just unbelievably cheap compared to equities, even after this massive sell-off we've seen in the stock market. So... Uh, looking at that, uh, again, I would, unless the uh, stocks are just absolutely getting ready to crater, uh, I would think that you certainly can't rule out. But I would think that commodities from a, from that standpoint, at least on a relationship basis, aren't likely to get a whole lot cheaper. I mean, again, on a world basis, historically, these, these carryovers are not burdensome by any stretch of the imagination. So I think, in, in a way, it's, maybe we just have to wait for some kind of bullish catalyst to come, whether it's a surprising surge in demand or maybe a stumble in South America's weather or something like that. But the stage could be set here for some decent strength. But in the meantime, you know, we're plagued with harvest pressure and, and just this, uh, I think, funds are slowly trying to sneak out the exit door with their very large longs at this point. That makes sense. Clayton, for those folks who are running those combines and yields are coming in hotter than expected, is this a time to market right off the combine or is there a, is it worth the investment in binning it up and waiting to see what comes in the future? Yeah, uh, well, I kind of shudder when I hear people like who don't have on-farm storage or saying, oh, you know, these prices should be so much higher. Uh, you know, I'm going to just suck it all away and pay for commercial storage. I just don't think that makes any sense at all. Uh, the, I mean, the spread structure out there is extremely flat. There's no return on storage. Awful lot of people or areas are having, uh, you know, decent uh, basis bids still. Um so you take all that into account, and, uh, and I think it, to answer your question, all depends on how much you have sold already. I, I think it would be, in my opinion, kind of foolish to be sitting here with uh, uh, you know, more than half your crop unsold. And, and if you find that you know you're getting these great yields and and you, you're producing a lot more than you thought you were, and, and maybe you, you know you thought you were X percent sold, and you're really a lot less than that. Yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to to be a seller even in the, after the recent declines. Uh, I, I, I don't think it really is justified to, to be storing more than half your crop at this point. All right. Things to think about here. As you're sitting in that combine bringing in this year's crop, we've been talking to Clayton Pope of Clayton Pope Commodities. And Clayton, thanks for joining us today. Hey, you bet. My pleasure. Good luck, everybody. Be safe. That's right. Stay safe out there. And folks, also stick around. Ken Zuckerberg of CoBank will be joining us next to talk about the outlook for biofuels as we head into this next year. Stay tuned for more AOA coming up. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we take a look at the market trade on this Friday, fairly mixed action. Soybeans moving a bit higher. That's helped pull corn and wheat off their overnight lows a little bit, but we're still kind of ebbing and flowing in that trade in mostly low volume, it appears here as we head to the weekend. A lot of traders probably don't want to be long. Many of these markets, especially wheat, considering all the tensions in Russia, Ukraine, and the headlines that could flow over the weekend into Monday. Now looking at the export side, we have some good and bad news on the weekly and daily wire. First on the weekly wire, U.S. export sales were just dismal this uh, week, ended October 6th, the lowest corn volume for the week since 2012. Wheat was the week's worst since 2017. Bean sales weren't that great either. They were in company with some of the lowest levels in 2011, 12, and 18. Now, for the good news, the Daily Wire, China, continuing to buy soybeans here this week. USDA confirmed this morning 392,000 metric tons of beans to China, 198,000 metric tons to unknown, which the trade will assume to be China, and 230,000 metric tons of soy meal and cake to the Philippines, all for this marketing year. If you're keeping score, since Wednesday, daily sales of U.S. beans have totaled 1.622 million tons, with 1.18 million of that to China. Now, for context, strong U.S. soy sales for the current week will be reported next Thursday. They're at 2 million metric tons plus as of now. So China stepping in to buy beans here at the end of this week in a fairly big way. We'll see if that continues to be reflected throughout the trade on Friday. Meantime, livestock trade hogs moving a bit higher. Another strong weekly export sales number for hogs, while cattle are mixed to slightly lower. Crude oil down uh, just under $2 a barrel right now, 87.23. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. One of the more interesting stories from an ag perspective that developed over this past year was the rise of ethanol in public consciousness after Russia invaded Ukraine and we saw crude oil prices go wild. We saw the biofuels conversation extend out beyond agriculture and it became a hot button topic in Washington, D.C. And in fact, it resulted in some additional funding for biofuels projects in the Inflation Reduction Act. And the funding for those products going forward could create a pretty interesting environment for American farmers, both on the ethanol side, but more importantly, down the line on the soybean and vegetable oil side. Joining me today to talk through some of this thinking is Ken Zuckerberg. He is the lead economist for grain and farm supplies over at the CoBank Knowledge Exchange. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, good morning. Great to be with you. Let's talk about this report you authored recently, Renewable Diesel Projected to Turbocharge Growth. You looked at some of the investments from the Inflation Reduction Act, and I guess let's talk totals. How much money is the IRA going to be pumping into the biofuel space? So, Mike, it's, it's quite a bit. Let me break it uh, down for you. The uh, IRA, which, interesting, Inflation Reduction Act is really, uh, you know, for our purposes, could be called the... Uh, the Biofuel Supercharge Act, right, uh, provided both assistance for uh, uh, renewable energy and uh, biofuel uh, in particular. So uh, a couple examples of this massive amount of funding, about $9.7 billion in assistance to rural uh, electric co-ops for renewable energy and energy efficiency projects, 
another uh, $3 billion in loans and funds for other uh, related uh, projects in rural areas, $500 million in funding for biodiesel blender pumps and infrastructure, uh, extensions of uh, uh, certain uh, tax credits, um, and temporary tax credit for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, which is uh, sort of a newer biofuel, which uh, uh, the technologies are going to eventually help uh, airplanes be a little greener in terms of their energy usage. Absolutely. A lot of talk about that sustainable aviation fuel looking to the future. But Ken, if we can take a step back in your report, you looked at biofuel consumption here in recent history, and it certainly seems as though it has plateaued, at least maybe over the last five years. What do you think caused that? Yeah, Mike, uh, whenever you do a project like this, you want to uh, do a, a comprehensive look back and then uh, in an attempt to look forward, right? So uh, biofuel, uh, importantly, is, is just one of a number of renewable energy uh, sources. And in recent years, biofuel lag consumption of uh, compared to solar and wind. In our opinion, you saw those large-scale projects uh, come online uh, and adoption increase. And then, by the way, as you know, we had COVID. Um, COVID uh, uh, distorted the numbers a bit because it resulted in initially uh, lower uh, production and consumption of ethanol. And ethanol itself dominates the biofuel landscape. Currently, ethanol is about 86% of the complex. Now, going forward, as you uh, saw in the report and as we've been uh, discussing with Covent clients, we have uh, a pretty good story on ethanol, at least in the short term, uh, movement from 10% blends up to 15 in motor gasoline. And then there is this massive uh, amount of growth in renewable diesel production, which we expect to come online uh, over the next, uh, call it eight years to 2030. So that is where the outlook things have changed for biofuel. That is fascinating. You mentioned ethanol, 86% of the current biofuels blend. Was there any special focus on ethanol here in the IRA, or was it mainly longer-term looking, focusing on those new generation biofuels? Well, I, you know, the, the legislation had a lot of commentary, uh, uh, you know, largely what we saw related to uh, next generation biofuels. I think what was interesting was earlier in the year, uh, uh, specifically after the uh, uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, Mr. Biden and the administration uh, uh, had a push for uh, greater use of the E15, and many states are uh, pushing for all-year-round usage of it. It's ironic, right, because uh, uh, that product, ethanol, being used to help reduce emissions in cars, there's a lot of positive leverage on that. So I think, um, you know, while perhaps it, it may not have been called out in as much detail as some would have liked, there's good momentum in that. And then, uh, as you know, my, my head is very focused on the, the commercial uh, uh, side of the uh, uh, fuel space at the moment with the renewable diesel. Well, let's turn our focus over to renewable diesel. If these investments from the IRA prove to be successful, and can you look at the work here developing in the industry, what sort of demand can you expect to see developing here for renewable diesel by 2030? Yes. So, Mike, let me uh, unpack it a couple different ways, if I could, and then I'll get to um, – uh, let me start with the conclusion. The, the demand is going to be very, very strong. By way of perspective, um, renewable diesel capacity is going from roughly a billion to six and a half billion gallons of renewable diesel by 2030. That's the expectation. Um, as you know from uh, our uh, discussions offline, there's uh, an issue with respect to feedstock uh, availability. We can talk about that later. But when you think about that six and a half billion, um, that's renewable diesel. Uh, you have a um, uh, industry that uses more than 44, 45 billion gallons of diesel. So there is a market opportunity. I, we think there's going to be demand. And then something interesting, and I don't want to confuse listeners out there, but there's biodiesel and renewable diesel. And biodiesel, as many of uh, your forum listeners know, has some performance limitations. Um, we view renewable diesel as sort of the next generation cousin of biodiesel, 
What's nice about it is both the product and the processes are efficient, um, a little bit more uh, efficient from the standpoint of the end result for the engine. Said differently, Mike, you can drop in that fuel into existing uh, commercial equipment and uh, use it interchangeably with diesel. That's one of the keys why this is going to be, in our opinion, uh, really adoption is going to ramp up. Absolutely. I mean, you hear the demand from those folks, particularly in the heavy use application about the, the requirement for a liquid fuel and for RD to be a drop in is certainly a nice feather in its cap. Kent, that being the case, what does production look like today? Is the American market well satisfied on the RD front or are we running behind already? No, we're just at the beginning, really. Like I said, last year, uh, uh, the estimate was about 800 millions of uh, gallons of production. This year, at the end of the year, it uh, expected to be about a billion five. So that's why I sort of go in the middle and say we're roughly at one billion, going to six and a half uh, billion um, based on projects that have been announced heretofore. So we're not running behind. I would say that we are now um at the uh at, at the forefront of uh raising awareness and um as these projects come online um we'll see production and i think a, a, a concurrence to uh, uh increasing consumption and that's where things are going to get interesting ken you mentioned we've seen a lot of projects announced additional soy crushing facilities in particular and uh do you think the strength in this market is enough to get those announcements or at least a, a majority of them through to completion well, Mike, the announcements and the funding uh, aside, tell me where are we going to get all these soybeans from? I mean, that is the fascinating question <laughs> that we tried to answer and at least discuss in our recent report. Let me, you know, bottom line it for you. With that five and a half billion gallons of net new capacity, that requires 3.4 billion new bushels of soybeans. For God's sakes, this year's crop, uh, that $3.4 billion represents about 77% of this year's crop. Where are we going to get all the new soybeans from? So there's an issue there. We unpack it a bit in the report with some different scenarios, but the bottom line is we need to increase yield. We need to increase oil content. We probably have to shift some acres over. And then the industry also needs to be a bit creative looking at other feedstocks such as tallow, such as canola, such as uh, uh, sunflower oil. So it's very interesting what's going on here. It certainly is. And Ken, how short on acres would we be if, uh, if this production were to ramp up immediately? Mike, are you sitting down or are you standing up? Because I, well, I am down sitting down, sir. How big is that number? Okay. All right, so that number is big. The 3.4 billion bushels, based on you know our estimates of uh, uh, average yield for soybeans, and the you know roughly 51 to 52, that equates to 66.5 million acres needed. That's gigantic. Now, in our wow. exercise, and and this was this was an exercise that we did um, theoretical. We said, what if we were to take all the soybeans we export and not export those and uh, instead use them for crush and simply, you know, then export the meal. I'm not recommending that. Neither is Kobeg. But we just yeah. did it for the purpose of perspective. If we did all that, we'd still need 17.9 million acres. And that's wow. what in and of itself is still a lot. So the 66.5 million is sort of uh, mind-boggling. The 18 million is also a very, you know, large number. So um, it is. I think na I think nature will have to find a way here, right? And if I jump to a conclusion about what's interesting, get the yields up. Absolutely. This is a fascinating report. It's a fascinating look out to the future of American agriculture in general, folks. You can find it on the CoBank Knowledge Exchange. We've been talking with Ken Zuckerberg, the lead economist for grain and farm supplies. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll talk pork exports with the USMEF's Aaron Borer when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 
What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a 9 to 5. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, on this program, I do like to talk about the success of the U.S. meat export program. I'm a firm believer that the more U.S. meat we can get in the mouths of consumers in other countries, the more folks in other countries are going to want to have more of that high-quality U.S. protein on their plate. So we like to check in with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And as we've been doing so over the past year, some results on pork exports have been a little slower than anticipated. But it seemed like with the August data that was turning around, joining us now to dig into some of these figures is economist Aaron Borer there with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And Aaron, looks like we've got something to celebrate for pork in the month of August. Yes, thanks, Mike. Uh, we had been waiting for this turnaround, as in exports to exceed year-ago levels. We'd expected it for the, the second half of the year, so it took until August, but starting to see that trend in the right direction. Yes, indeed. It is good news. And Aaron, one of the things that stuck out at me on this most recent report was that sales to Mexico continue to be exceptionally strong. What's driving that market down south of the border? Yeah, Mexico has been incredible. So they are taking 9% of our production, and that's been the case every month since August of last year. And it just is... Aaron, hold on one second. Is that 9% of total pork production in the United States is being shipped and sold to Mexico? Exactly. Month in and month out. Holy cow. Yeah. So, so fortunate uh, for us that Mexico needs our product, wants our product, because they were able to uh, at least partially offset the slowdown in shipments to China. And so they're taking, of course, still that bone-in ham. We're also shipping more bone-in shoulder products because Mexico's demand has been so strong. We've had really high ham prices. They're able to average that out some on taking more of the shoulder product, so adding value across even more of the pig. And we know Mexico has the labor advantage, so us being able to ship those bone-in chilled combos to Mexico, so less labor required on our side. And then this product goes into, you know, a wide array of processed products in Mexico. And kind of the insatiable demand down there is driven by the need for affordable protein. And kind of a, a bit of a factor is our high path situation. So the decrease in U.S. turkey exports to Mexico has been significant. And that turkey product can go in to a, a processed ham in Mexico. It's also a, you know, an eligible ingredient for that product. Oh. And so they haven't really had the, the turkey supplies available. And so, I mean, that's kind of on the fringe, but that's also been a contributor to their continued need for more U.S. pork. Yeah, that is just incredible growth. 9% of the total U.S. pork production. Wow. You did mention there, we've been waiting on demand to see a resurgence there in Asia, particularly the China, Hong Kong region. Erin, were they back into the market in August? They were. So that was a little bit of a surprise. China came in stronger than I had expected for August. And uh, in hindsight, maybe we should have somewhat expected it. Um, China's hog price started to accelerate from June. And at this point, uh, even here today, they're up about 120% on that hog price compared to last year. Um, it's 27 yuan per kilo, so somewhere around U.S. dollar 65 or so um, per pound live hog price. And that's the highest we've seen since March um, of 2021. And even back in August, that hog price was well over 20. And so that we knew would start to stimulate some imports. But remember, U.S. pork is at a big disadvantage in China. We still have the 25% retaliatory tariff on top of our product. So that actually translates into a 37% tariff on U.S. pork. Everyone else is at 12%. So yeah, Any discussion about rolling that back, Aaron, have you heard? Uh, it has been in the headlines for much of this year. I have been a doubter the whole time. Um, part of the problem is a lot of the talk is on the Section 301 or intellectual property tariffs. 
And China has been waiving those tariffs on our products, both beef and pork, since uh, March of 2020, remember when the phase one was implemented. And so what's still impacting U.S. pork is Section 232, which is the metal tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs. And those haven't really been talked about. So unfortunately, I don't see them going away. Um, China's not likely to unilaterally lift that retaliation. And so unfortunately, I think we're stuck. Um, the other good news here in these August numbers, though, was that it was a record pork variety meat shipment to China. And that's where China has continued to add value. Um, even through this hog cycle, they've had essentially, again, insatiable demand for feet, stomach, head, ears, snouts. And what was hitting that was um, the tariffs, but they've kind of found a way to deal with that. Uh, but they're COVID restrictions. So China's testing, disinfecting, tracing, uh, sometimes limiting sales of cold chain food products. That had really hit their buying of our pork variety meats, say from Q4 last year through Q1 this year. And then we started to see those volumes tick up again. And in August, set a new record. So again, China's Muscle meat demand came back stronger than expected. Um, I'm still a little bit cautious there, but these variety meat items are critical to adding dollars to every pig. And yeah, those set a record to China in August. That's always good news. Before we let you go, Aaron, we did see strong sales yet again to the Dominican Republic. I assume African swine fever has decimated that herd on that country. Yes, indeed. So, um, you know, a troubling story, no doubt, uh, but Yes, U.S. pork has been able to at least somewhat fill in their shortage in that market. So record exports to the Dominican Republic uh, will certainly be the case for this year. And then, you know, growth in that region also includes Colombia. So August was down a tick from a year ago, but we have Colombia taking a record volume of U.S. pork for this calendar year and helping to grow consumption in that market. Lots of opportunity ahead for U.S. protein producers, particularly on the pork side. Aaron Borer, economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, tune in to the next AOA. We'll be talking with Arlen Suderman about what's going on in the markets. We'll also get a weather update from John Baranek of DTN Weather. We'll see you then. Take care, everyone. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Uh, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot on a chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging. Pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins, and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA.